Where we would begin in our study is to understand who the book was addressed to and why it was addressed to them, because that is quite important in understanding the language of the book and the, and the themes that the book deals with, right? So the title of the book is Hebrews, because the letter was addressed to the Hebrews. Now, it's not exactly very clear what Hebrews, right, the letter was addressed to. Remember that severe persecution in Jerusalem had forced people, had forced the Jews to flee from Jerusalem in the book of Acts to, to, to go in different directions. And that was one of the things that led to the birthing of the church in Antioch. So there was persecution that led Jews to, to, to scatter into different parts of the world. So it's not exactly clear which side of Jews the book of Hebrews was written to. However, there is a clue right at the end of the book. There is a clue right at the end of the book. Let's find it. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 24b. So right at the end of the book, it says, Greet all those who rule over you and all the saints. Those from Italy greet you. So you might infer, and quite realistically from, from this statement, those from Italy greet you that the letter was sent to Italy. And if it was sent to Italy, it's, it's right to perhaps assume that it was sent to Rome, which was the capital, which, was, which had a church that was previously planted. So if we assume that the letter was sent to Jews in Rome, the question then is, why would anyone want to write a letter, a Christian letter to Jews in Rome? Have you thought about that? Why would the author address his letter only to Jews in Rome. First of all, Rome is, is not a Jewish colony, right? Rome is a Gentile colony. And if you remember when we studied the book of Romans, we said that the Roman church was predominantly made up of Gentile Christians. And part of what occasioned or necessitated the writing of the book of Romans was that um, the emperor before Nero, who was Claudius, had expelled the Jews from Rome. That was his own policy, right? Um, he was not very tolerant of Jews and he expelled them from Rome. So for a long time, the church in Rome was constituted of only Gentiles. And then when, when Nero came to power after Claudius died in AD 54, he, he changed the policy essentially and welcomed Jews back to Rome. And so Jewish Christians started returning to Rome. And then as they returned to Rome and joined the Gentile church, in their church services, all kinds of issues began to come up, you know, such as, you know, what kind of meats to it. And that was what occasioned the necessity for the book of Romans, even though Paul had other things in mind when, when he wrote it. So the question is, why would the author of the book of Hebrews, right, be writing to Jewish Christians in Rome? The only way to answer that question is to go back to the historical context. If um, Nero was the emperor in Rome that persecuted the Christians the most, and as at the time that this book was, that this letter was written, persecution of Christians was at its height, right? Their homes were being vandalized, at least according to historical records. Their possessions were being confiscated, and some of them were even being cast into prison because right at the end of the book, um, 
um, where we read that the letter was forwarded to Italy, you would read the author saying that Timothy has just been released from prison. There was a great price to pay for believing in Jesus. And the thing is that the Gentiles who believed in Jesus did not really have something to go back to if they decided to renounce their faith in Christ. And so it's either, it's either they, they, they completely turn away from Christ, right, or they just persevere through the suffering in Rome. But the Jews had an alternative because Judaism, the religion of the Old Covenant, the religion of the Old Testament, was still a legal practice in the Roman Empire. It was one easy way to escape the persecution, the suffering, the difficulty of following Christ in the Roman Empire was simply to, to embrace your Jewish identity in your religious practice and denounce Christ as, as Messiah. So the Jews had a doorway out of tribulation. They had a doorway out of suffering and that was to go back to the synagogue. And you know, it's, it would have been a pious thing for that to happen, right? That, okay, God, I'm not completely denying you. You know, I'm not completely turning my back on you, but, but my children are suffering. They are being beaten out of school, for example, right? Our business is suffering. Everything around us is suffering just because we believed in Christ. So let us just go back to the, to the promises and the covenant of the old covenant. And there was no shortage of preachers and Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees, you can imagine, that would have been on hand to encourage such departures. So what was happening in this city, wherever it is, this letter was sent to, which we assume is Rome, what was happening was that a drift was beginning to occur. So the Jewish Christians were drifting from the faith back to the Judaistic settings. So just picture it in your mind that there is so much persecution. And in fact, it is your fellow Jews who are handing you over to be persecuted, right? For your property to be vandalized because you're a Christian. But the solution <laughs> is to go back to the synagogue and embrace Judaism. And then the Pharisees and whoever was in charge were, will be right at the door of the synagogue and will say to you, do you denounce Jesus as the Messiah? And if you say yes, you are welcome back into the fold and your life continues as normal. So the Jews had this option, which the Gentiles didn't have because their history was not steeped in Judaism. Now, that's necessary for us to understand as we study the book of Hebrews that this is, this is the burden of the writer. The burden of the writer is to stop the drift, right? That's the burden that he has in his heart, to stop that drift to the old Judaistic religion, to the old covenant, back to the old system. It's necessary to lay that foundation because the writer's the writer says many things that are that sound harsh, or maybe not sound harsh. It's not, sound harsh is not the right way to put it. The writer gives warnings in this book. There are five famous warnings in in the book of Hebrews. The writer makes it very clear, except if you don't want to read the scriptures clearly. The writer makes it very clear that it is possible to lose your salvation, right? And that's necessary to state because some people come to the book of Hebrews with an overly theological lens towards the book. They completely remove it from its context and they try to justify that one saved is forever saved and Hebrews is not really saying what it is saying. Or worst case scenario, 
they tried to say that the letter was written to people who were considering to be Christians, but were not really Christians. As you read the book, you realize that the, the addressing that was used to the recipients of these letters, of this letter, could only have been written to people who have believed in Christ. There's very explicit, very clear language that's, that talks about tasting of the power of the age to come. And only Christians have experienced that. So the writer is writing to this audience specifically. I hope that helps us. The question that's on my mind to ask us though, right, is what do you do when you notice that you have started drifting back into your old ways? Because we're going to look at the layout of the letter shortly. But before we do that, we have already mentioned that first activity that was that is in the background of this letter, which is the drift that was happening, right? I don't know if it happens to you or if it's just me that you find yourself drifting. You know, the things that used to be attractive to you before, but which you completely laid down for Jesus. At some point, you just find that they start becoming attractive again. You start finding out that maybe your soul is not liking the disciplines of the spirit, you know, <laughs> as much as he used to. Um, the place of prayer is not... It's not, it's not the thing that, you know, excites you anymore. It's not the thing that appeals to you. Or you find that many things that you were convinced before were not in the will of God for you. You are beginning to accommodate them into your space. How do you rectify a situation of drifting? The reason I'm asking is that the book of Hebrews offers us practical answers for this problem. And the reason the book offers us practical answers is because drifting, if it is unchecked, has consequences. If it is unchecked. So that's my question for us. How, how do you get yourself back on track when you find yourself drifting? Or do you not, do you not relate to what I'm asking? Don't, do you ever feel like, or do you not ever feel like you're just drifting? Okay, for me, when I when I get when I notice that that's happened to me, I think I begin to watch what I listen to. Like I retrace what I'm hearing mostly. Okay. So I try to go back to like hearing more of God's word. Like I try to do like an overall of what I hear. Mm-hmm. And that helps me. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Golda. I think I've been there before too, where there's just no prayer in my spirit, no matter how I try. But I'm like. Let me just be hearing, Sha. Let me just be hearing. <laughs> yes, that's definitely one way to, to stop the drift. Anybody else? Okay, if I may. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, there, I would say there are two ways. One of them is for me is to constantly expose myself to sound teachings. So once, whenever I just sense that drifting, I restrain myself or restrict myself to the diet of sound, strong, rugged teachings. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> those not the not the nice ones. I do my best to avoid. I don't know about others, but me, I know those people that naturally their teachings used to wire me kuboku, so I'll listen to their teachings. <laughs> uh, 
And then another thing which is very, very underrated is whenever I sense that is always to have a voice, a voice of accountability. Mm. So I have a couple of people in my life who um, whenever I, in fact, the truth is that whenever I'm drifting, which is those people that even point, call me out and say, mm. come, you know, something is changing. And in, in, in for adventure, they don't call me out. In a situation where they don't call me out, I've also come to that place where I do submit to them. I'll tell them this thing, things are not the way they used to be. And we'll have that conversation. And then they begin to, you know, doctor me or let's say midwife me back. So I think those are the two ways for me, yes. Thank you, Sami. Any other? Okay. Um, for me, I listen to sermons also like over and mm -hmm. over again. Then something else I do, most times I just soak myself in an atmosphere of worship. Mm. Many times there may be just one song that would just maybe just hear something within. I may not be totally out, but just a spark. So most times mm. when I find that I begin to pray, even when I can't pray, I just ask God for mercy. Then mm. I don't take it for granted and I don't let it tarry for long. Once I notice, I, I take it really seriously. Mm. Yeah. That's very good. Thank you, Anna. Any more? Okay. So I think our answers are, con are converging, right, to hearing. And if I may ask, why is hearing important? Because from what I've heard from, from Golda, from Sami, from Ene, converges about like when I'm drifting, I know that the, the only way to get back on track is to hear. It's as though hearing is a gateway, it's a portal into something. What is hearing a portal into? Hearing is a portal into faith. And actually, faith is the answer of the book of Hebrews. And that's why that beautiful chapter is there towards the end in chapter 11. The answer to drifting is faith. Now, the thing is that the author of Hebrews does not have a simplistic definition for faith, right? which is why he ends up telling you that faith is a substance. And after he tells you that faith is a substance, he now gives you a long list of what that substance looks like in different people's lives. For, for, someone, for, for some people, because of the substance, they were moved with great fear. Some people, the substance made them reject things, reject the pleasures of Egypt. For other people, the substance made them endure. He didn't have a one-size-fits-all definition for faith. He just said that there's a reality called faith, and if you lay hold of it, you can endure. And it will produce different things, right? Which is why everything that we have said is correct, and we're going to see... Um, that's in the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews has 13 let us. <laughs> so, so the entire book is a build up to a great personal appeal that in light of everything that has been presented, let us. And towards the end, we're going to look at all those let us. You're going to see that faith manifests itself in different ways, right? For example, in, in chapter 4, verse 1, it says, let us fear, right? <laughs> lest, a lest a promise remaining of us of entering God's rest, we fall short of that promise. So there is a kind of godly fear that is an expression of faith. And that's what I want us to see, that faith is the answer. And there is, there is something that's at the heart of faith. There is, there is a person that's at the heart of faith, like we saw when we looked at have faith in God. And 
he wants them not to lose sight of that person. And in, in a sense, this book is about that personality. That whatever it is that, that draws your focus away from that personality is, 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 a, is a threat and you need to deal with it like an emergency. And whatever it is that, that enables you keep your focus on that personality is a blessing. And that personality is Christ, is Jesus. It's Jesus. He is the author and the perfecter of our faith. He is the one that faith springs from. He is the one from whom faith matures. And so what your hearing is doing is that your hearing is helping you focus on him. And, and how far, or rather when you, you snap out of that dripping is when your spirit touches his reality. And it could be through a song, through a sermon, through a, through a brother, through a sister. You know, one of the things that Hebrews tells us is, let us not forsake the gathering of ourselves together, right? That's supposed to be one of the agencies of faith, one of the expressions of faith, one of the things that puts our attention back on Jesus. So this is what Hebrews is leading us to, to, to that great personal appeal, that faith faith is the, is the overarching principle of the new covenant and, and the and the taproot of faith, the focal point of faith is the person of Jesus. And he wants the reader, he wants the Hebrews in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of the persecution, and also in the midst of the temptation to swerve and to drift back into the old Judaistic religion. He wants them to keep their focus on Jesus. Because if they are able to keep their focus on Jesus, Faith will continually well up in their hearts, and through faith, they will earn a good report. Okay, so what I want us to do now is to just take a, a look at the layout of the book, right? Like we said, what we're going to do today is to do a summary of the book itself so that you can see the main themes. Today, the basis of that summary will be the first four chapters, or sorry, the first four verses of chapter one which capture, in a sense, the burden of the book, right? The entirety of the book. And we'll take our journey from there. Okay? So, Golda, can you read for us Hebrews chapter 1, from verse 1 to 4? Okay. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, as in these days, as in this last day spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, whom also he made the world, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself touched our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. For, having become so much better than the eagles, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Okay, thank you, Golda. Having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. So why is it necessary to deal with a drift? Because that's the, that's the reason the author is writing, to stop the drift. The reason why that's necessary is that God has been speaking. God has not left us without a revelation of his, of his person, without a revelation of his nature. You know, we are not without a knowledge of what God thinks. You know, drifting is okay if 
all of us are drifting anyways, right? Because that's how some, that's the worldview some people have. That's how some people in interpret the world. That we're all drifting. You know, we don't really know what God wants, what God likes. Because, and sometimes there's good reason for that, right? You see that the wicked are prospering and you're asking yourself, so is there really any benefit to righteousness? The wicked tend to live longer than the righteous. The wicked tend to lord it over the righteous, you know? Um, in fact, the writer of Ecclesiastes says that he has seen an evil under the sun, that there is, there is an uncanny thing about life that, that many things are given to chance. There doesn't seem to be as much order as we'll expect if indeed there is a loving and powerful creator. And if that loving and powerful creator is still actively involved in the world. You know, there are three kinds of theisms, right? You have atheism, which, which says that um, there is no creator of the world, right? Like there is no designer behind creation. And so like matter is all that there is. There is no dimension beyond the physical. But then you also have the deist, which um, you'll be surprised that many, many people who are called Christians belong to this category which is that the, the days be, believe that, of course, the universe was created by someone, maybe he's God, right? But he's not really intervening in the, in the earth right now. You just need to learn the principles that he has put into the earth and work with them. You know, <laughs> just in case you have a wedding, you don't need to pray for the rain not to fall. <laughs> Who are you praying to? The God that created the universe has withdrawn himself for it, for, from it. The chaos of the universe is proof that whoever created this has completely withdrawn. He, he, no, he no longer controls it. He no longer um, intervenes in it. There are many Christians who are in this state of their faith. So they don't see the need for prayer. Because in their view, even though God exists, he's not interested in his creation, right? He's not actively moving on the earth. If he were, our country, for example, would not be the way it is. And then there is um, there is us who you might call the theist. And what it means to be a theist is that you believe that there is a creator and that not only is there a creator, but that he's actively um, intervening upon the face of the earth. And it is from, from, from theism that we get our study um, of God, which is theology. So the writer is saying to the Hebrews that drifting is dangerous because God is not passive, like many will have us believe. God has spoken to us. What he's doing here, he says, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. The fathers here are the fathers of the Hebrew nation, right? Because this is the audience of the book. He's saying that there is... He's first of all showing you there's a continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament, which, again, some people in our generation struggle with to see that continuity. But he's saying that the same God who revealed himself to the fathers by the prophets is the same God of the New Testament. This is one thing that you and I must uphold, that there is continuity. God was not a tyrant in the Old Testament who suddenly became a teddy bear you know, in the New Testament. It's the same God. But of course, there is, it's not only 
there's not only a continuity between the Old and the New Testament, there's a contrast. Right? There, there are many things that are different, and the chief of them is the way in which God speaks to us now in the New Covenant. So in the Old Covenant, how did he speak? He spoke at various times, which you can see through the Old Testament, that those prophets were not prophesying every day. For example, Jeremiah's prophetic uh, ministry lasted for 40 years, but his book is just, I think, 52 chapters. <laughs> if he was prophesying every day, he would have had way more chapters than that. So God spoke at certain times or various times. Now, he also spoke in various ways, meaning that he spoke, the whole counsel of God was not captured by any one prophet. That's one way to interpret this, right? He spoke in various ways to different prophets. And if you look at the prophets in the Old Testament, you discover that each of them had a specific burden that God had called them to, to speak about, to prophesy about, to live out. Each of them saw a different dimension of God. Does that make sense to us? So you know that the, like the books of the Old Testament are divided into, like the, like the prophecies of the Old Testament are divided into the major prophets and the minor prophets. What makes somebody a major or a minor prophet is not their spiritual ranking or their anointing. The, the words major and minor simply refer to the number of chapters in their prophecies. So the, the difference between them is that some people prophesied more than other people. Right? So you can, like the three, the top three major prophets of the Old Testament were Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, right? In that order. And then there were all the minor prophets. But one thing that is consistent, right, is that each of these prophets revealed a certain aspect of the character of God, a certain aspect of the speakings of God. But when you put all that they were saying together, there were two core attributes of God, or perhaps you might call it one core attribute that breaks out into two tributaries. There were two core attributes of God that were on display in the Old Testament prophecies. And those two core attributes of God were actually in tension with each other somehow. Now, if, if we don't get this straight, we might not understand why God had to speak again, but through an appointed son, right? So let's, let's, let's take a step back and do an Old Testament survey, right? What was the central message of Isaiah's prophecy, for example? Or maybe a better way to phrase that is to say, what dimension of God's character was Isaiah exposed to? What dimension of God's character was, was Jonah? You know, he, Jonah had a book. <laughs> what dimension of God's character was his, his prophetic writings about? What dimension of God's character was Jeremiah's writing about? What dimension of God's character and nature was Ezekiel's writing about? Do my questions make sense? You can pick any of these prophets or even any other one that comes to mind and just share with us. You know. Remember, what we're trying to do is that we're trying to establish, right, that there's a continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament, that God 
did not reveal all of his counsel to any of the prophets. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. And what God did is that he spoke at various times, depending on the circumstances of the time. And he spoke in various ways. So sometimes he used parables, he used poetry, he used prose. Um, yeah, he used different formats to speak. Right? And so we're trying to bring this home to us. What revelation of God did Isaiah receive that was central to his ministry? Okay, if I may, mm -hmm. it was the, uh, uh, where well, I say the full unveiling of the birth, the life and sacrifice of the Messiah in detail. Yes, he was a prophet that prophesied about the about the birth of Jesus, right? But yeah. what what aspect of the character of God did he see that marked his prophetic ministry? You know what we're, what we're trying to establish is that God spoke through this prophet. I remember that, like, for us to understand what's going on in Hebrews, we need to empathize with the Hebrews. Like, we need to stand in their shoes. So we are Hebrews right now, and in our history, there was a man called Isaiah. And the way God spoke to his prophets was not just by the things they said. Their lives, their encounters, their experiences were the message. They were showcasing a certain aspect of God. So, so maybe to give us an example, remember Hosea, right? The prophet. Remember that God asked him to marry a prostitute. No. Yes, to marry a prostitute. And when he married her, she was unfaithful to him. She still went back into prostitution. And God asked him <laughs> to still go and find her and bring her home. Do you see what I'm trying to point out? That if you read the prophecies of Hosea, the attribute of God you're going to see is his mercy. It's his mercy. That's why... Jesus told the Jews or the Pharisees that go and read what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. That's in Hosea. Hosea's prophecies were supposed to unveil to Israel the long-suffering kindness and mercy of God. Does that make sense to us? Yeah, it does. Yeah. Okay. So let's look at Isaiah's we are only going to look at Isaiah because Isaiah is the most prominent of all the prophets of Israel. His book is quite strategic in scripture. His book has 66 chapters, the same, num the same number of books in the entire Bible, which is 66. His book, his letter, his book is divided into two parts. The first part has 37 chapters. The second part has 29 chapters, which is the exact same division that we have in our Bibles of 37 Old Testament books. And so essentially you can see that the prophecy of Isaiah is central, right? If you understand the dealings of God with Isaiah, it's likely that you catch a more complete glimpse of the nature of God. Can you read for us, Koda, um, from verse 1 to 5 of Isaiah chapter 6? Okay. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, I am lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim, each had six wings. 
with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. Verse 5. So said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Okay. So what is it that Isaiah saw about God that was central to his character? I think his majesty. Okay. So look at verse 3 again. His holiness. His holiness. His holiness. And you see, what you may not notice is that the, the, the three times repetition here is referring to the three members of the Godhead. Again, another proof that there is continuity between the Old Testament and the New, because one of the arguments you get against Jesus' claims to deity is that some people say that the concept of the Trinity was not developed in the Old Testament. Right? But Isaiah saw the Lord and the angels were crying, the cherubs and the seraphs were crying, holy, or the seraphs in this, in this case, not the cherubs, the heraphs the, and the seraphs were crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The essential quality of God is that he's holy. And Isaiah was brought into this environment. And the moment he saw the holiness of God, he, <laughs> he became afraid for himself. If this person is going to be my judge, then, then woe is me. The holiness of God was so distinct, so spotless, that Isaiah knew that he didn't stand a chance. In fact, the atmosphere itself alone exposed him. I was like, what is this? What kind of brightness is this? What kind of brilliance is this? What kind of spotlessness is this? And, and he said, woe is me, for I'm undone. He began to confess his sins. He began to realize his, his shortcoming. So you see that if God were to deal with us on this basis, right? If you were to appear to us on this basis, there is no way you and I can come into his presence. It's not possible. And this is why nobody except the high priest and once a year was allowed to come into the Holy of Holies. And even for the high priest to make that journey into the Holy of Holies of the tabernacle of the Old Covenant, there had to be sacrifices. There had to be sprinkling of blood. And it had to be according to a certain schedule. It's not as though God was trying to make it hard. <laughs> for you to come to God. He was actually trying to make it easy. Because if he's to appear in his holiness, you'll be killed. And that's why the, the, the priests were warned that do not come to this place uninvited. But you see, the beautiful thing that you realize about the Ark of the Covenant and the Tabernacle was that at the end of the day, right, when the priest eventually at the end of the year, rather, when the priest eventually made it into the Holy of Holies, when you walk into the Holy of Holies, the first thing you see is this throne. Remember the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat? That's the first thing you see. <laughs> the mercy seat. Meaning that all of the paraphernalia of sacrifices and of blood and of sprinkling and of veils 
and of curtains and of altars and of everything that came before you got into that place was making a pathway for mercy. And so God knows that there's no way he can relate with you and I without mercy. Because after this experience that Isaiah had, he could have been judged instantly and destroyed from God's presence. But he experienced the mercy of God. And that is why in the writings of the prophets, the two things, the two attributes of God that seem to be in tension is the justice of God and the mercy of God. And every prophet that you read attests to some aspect of this character of God. So, for example, Jeremiah revealed, revealed the suffering side of God. Jeremiah suffered. You know, when God wants to make a prophet, he doesn't just give him words. God's intention is to make his spokesman one with the message so that whatever it is the message entails, you yourself will be a carrier of that message. So there were strange instructions that God gave his prophets just because they were supposed to be an exemplification, right, of the message that they were carrying. So Jeremiah, amongst many other things, was proclaiming to Israel how much God suffers because he came into a love relationship with them. You see, God is holy. He cannot compromise his holiness for anything. The foundation of his throne, the Bible tells us, is justice, is righteousness, is justice. The earth is in balance and is not shaking because of those principles. God's throne is founded on them. So the question is, how can you and I come close? It's by mercy. So there is the justice of God and there's the mercy of God. And Israel had a covenant that was conditional in the Old Testament so that based on what they did or what they did not do, they were either exposed to the justice of God or they were exposed to the mercy of God. And sometimes even in the midst of the judgment, when they were exposed to the judgment of God, there was still the promise of mercy. Because part of what it means that God is holy is that God is whole. That's another word for holy. He's whole. He's complete. There is a, there's a compendium of virtues that no man has except God. He's righteous, but he's also loving. And the question is, how does God balance his justice and his mercy? How does God punish the sinner and yet forgive the sinner? That was the dilemma of the prophets. Because even they were speaking to a people that did not have the capacity to obey God. And they knew that their speakings were going to trigger judgment over these people. But there was no solution except to speak the words of God. So I wanted to show, I went here to show us um, that fact, right? That when it says that God spoke in various ways and at various times through the prophets, he's saying that each of the prophets captured a certain dimension of the character of God. Ezekiel captured the glory of God. And the prophecies of Ezekiel are sort of a lamentation of, of the state of man without that glory. Right? And what I wanted to show us was that there is a tension between the mercy of God and the justice of God. How can God come into the relationship that he so longs for with his people while maintaining his 
righteousness while maintaining his justice. And what do you think is the solution to that problem, that tension? Because if you're preaching the gospel to an unbeliever, it is not the gospel if you do not present to them the tension, this tension between love and justice. Love has many synonyms. You can call it mercy, you can call it kindness, you can call it compassion, you can call it faithfulness, but it is all one attribute of love and mercy. How do you resolve this tension? Does my analogy make sense? Does my presentation make sense up to this point? Or, or did I pluck out mercy and justice from the air? No, it makes sense. Okay. How do you resolve the tension? Because that's the burden of the entire covenant, how God resolves that tension between his mercy and his justice. So that's what necessitates verse 2. It says that God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these days, in these last days, God has finally spoken, meaning he has spoken one last time. And that speech is not letters, but it's in a person. He has spoken to us by his son. So Christ is the summation of all the virtues of God, right? So look at it. It says that he appointed Christ. So he has spoken in this last day to, to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, right? Through whom also he made the world, who being the brightness of his glory. So the brightness of his glory is. Hmm. So imagine, imagine like the sun, right? You cannot see the sun, but you can see the brightness of the sun so that that if you see the brightness of the sun, you, you don't need to see the sun. <laughs> those, those two things are one and the same. That's, that's what Christ is. He's the brightness of the glory of God. There is no virtue of God that was obscured in Christ. The justice of God is satisfied in Christ and the love of God is satisfied in Christ. You see? And he upholds all things by the word of his power. Let's stop there for now. So God has spoken one last time and he has concluded his speakings in his son. The Bible says in John chapter 1 that in the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. And the word was made flesh and it dwells amongst us. It's as though when God was finally ready to speak to man, he says, no, I've spoken to you through prophets. Jeremiah came and you killed him because he didn't like what he was saying. He was talking about judgment. And you thought that I was only a God of judgment. You know, um, Isaiah came and you killed him. Ezekiel came and you killed him. All of those prophets, even Moses, they were just snapshots of who I am. And now I'm ready to speak to you. <laughs> and when God was ready to speak, he gave us his son. You know that there, most of the people that have influenced your life the most, the people who have influenced your life the most, have done so without necessarily talking to you. Do you agree with, with that, my statement? 
that God has just placed you <laughs> in the environment where the thing God wanted to say to you was personified in them. Or the thing Satan wanted to say to you was personified in them, whichever the case might be. God finds it the most effective way. So essentially, when you hear that God spoke, it's not so much the case that he said something, even though he does speak, right? This is a core belief that the Jews had in the Old Testament, that um, we do not just have a God who created the universe, but is just somewhere relaxing. He's, he's, he's speaking, he's moving. is the movement of God that occasion what we call the move of the Spirit, that God moves. Like he, you, you can trace his activity in creation, even up till now, even though the creation enterprise itself has ended on God's side. But when God is ready to speak, he, he brings a man. He puts an example. The reason is because when God speaks, he wants you to become one with his word. So that when God spoke about his holiness, he's not just trying to inform you that he's holy. He wants you to arrive at the place where you too are holy. When God speaks about his power and his glory, he wants you to partake of it. He wants you to taste of it. And the only way he found to do that was to, was to pour out all these virtues in his son and appointed him the heir of all things to us, right? And gave him as our example. In Romans chapter 1, Paul tells us that God made a declaration in the life of Jesus. Because the question then is, what did God say through Jesus, right? If he has spoken to us by his son, what did he say? In Romans chapter 1, verse 1, Paul says, Paul, a born servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. The gospel of God is the good news about God. The, <laughs> the message that God is saying. Now, this gospel was promised. So that's what the Old Testament contains. A promise of Christ, essentially. A promise of the gospel. He promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And in verse 3, he begins to talk about the content of God's message. That this gospel is concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. So the declaration that God made once and for all to all humanity, to Jew, to Greek, to Gentile, the declaration he made was the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus, like we saw when we looked at the resurrection of the dead, was not resuscitated from death. He was raised into a different kind of life. And all of us now have a decision to make on the basis of his resurrection because the fact that he lives today with a new life is God's final message to all of creation. It's God's final message to all of creation. But the thing that Paul wants his readers in Romans to notice that, and that is what Hebrews would begin to pick up from, from next week, from chapter 1 and chapter 2, is that God achieved this in a man. Je Jesus, his son, became flesh. He became a man. And that's significant because he's 
only just a prototype of what you and I can become in him if we pay attention to him. So that's why Paul traced his physical ancestry. He said that the gospel of God is concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. So Golda, you have a, you have a family lineage. So you were born of the seed of Jumbo according to the flesh. But that's not the end of your destiny. That's not the end of your possibilities. The riches, the possibilities that accrue to you on account of the fact that you that you were born from the Jumbo line is not the end of your possibilities. There's another set of possibilities that that are that are yours in Christ. And how do you know that they are yours? There was a declaration that God made. And that declaration was an act of power that raised Jesus from the dead. And it was accomplished by the spirit of holiness. So that even though you have a lot, you have a portion according to the flesh, you have an even greater lot and an even greater portion according to the spirit. That if Jesus walked in power, you can walk in power. If Jesus walked in victory, you can walk in victory. If today Jesus is walking in glory, that is your hope. That is your end goal. Do you see what the writers are doing in these letters? So Hebrews is trying to show these Jews that are drifting to the synagogue <laughs> that, that you are going to an inferior setup because now God has a better message. He has a better messenger and he has a better outcome for that message. In chapter 1, he compares Christ to the angels. And we're going to see why he does that in chapter 1. And he begins to reveal that the angels are inferior to Christ. But if the word that the angels brought was unbreakable, how much more the word that God has spoken through Christ? Right? And that is what leads him to give those warnings. Right? Because... Um, like we're going to see, we're out of time, fortunately now. But like we're going to see, in Christ, there is a better rest. There is a superior priesthood. That priesthood is based on a different order. That priesthood, hi, Kai, that priesthood is based on a different order. We don't have time. We'd have touched it a bit. But when we get there, we'll do it. There's a better priesthood. A priesthood that does not need to continue going in year after year to make sacrifices, right? But it makes sacrifices once and for all. It has made a sacrifice once and for all, meaning that Christ has been sacrificed once and for all for all of us. That is so significant because if what is on the agenda is no longer offering sacrifices for sin, then God can move on to the next item on the agenda, which is the release of his life in us. Right. So that in this new priesthood, it's possible to know God. We're going to look at all of that as we study the book of Hebrews. The reason that's possible, he tells us in Hebrews chapter 10, you know, chapter 8 from verse 10 to 12, is that I will remember your sins no more until the issue of the justice of God was taken care of. We couldn't go further in our relationship with God. All we could do was to deal with a voice through prophets. But by a greater priesthood, 
a sacrifice has been made once and for all. And now that our sins have been blotted out completely, an access point has been created. And you can know God. You know, you can do something and the Holy Spirit will register his, his displeasure on your heart. And you know, Kai, God is not like this. You can know God. You can walk in the fullness of all that God designed you to walk in. Because you, are, you, you have the advantage of a superior priesthood. And the writer is saying to the Hebrews, <laughs> this is not something you should drift from. And just in case you still make up your mind to drift, there's a warning. Or not a warning. There are, there are many warnings, right? That if God has made this arrangement, if he has spoken to us through his son, and we still eventually drift away, there's no other sacrifice that is left. What else can God do if we do not pay attention to what he has already done? So the next time you are thinking that ah, there's something God still needs to do <laughs> to convince me that he's God. The answer of Hebrews is that there's nothing he needs to do. He has spoken through Christ and he has done the greatest thing that he could have done for you. What we see in Hebrews is, is the pattern that leads to degeneration if it's not checked. Because the first warning warns the people about drifting. He says, hey, let's pay attention to what God is saying in Christ. And then the next warning is about unbelief, right? Because when you drift long enough from the word of God, what happens is that you begin to doubt it. You begin to doubt the word of God. And then the next warning is about despising the word of God. And then the next warning is about defying the word of God. Like, there is just a progression of departures. And he concludes the book, like we said earlier at the beginning, by giving us the antidote to, this, this, to these departures, which is faith. Faith. Let's just read it quickly as we close. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Um, can you read for us verse 35 to 39? Okay. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul, to the saving yeah. of the soul. Yeah, thank you. Now the just shall live by faith. We have said before that that statement is supposed to be a contradiction, right? That nobody can be just. So how how did you become just? On what basis could we call you just? Remember the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and said, "Good Lord." What must I do to be saved? And Jesus rebuked him instantly and said, before I answer your question, you need to know that no one is good except God. So how come you and I are now being referred to as the just? The only way we became the just was by faith. In this higher order of things, in this higher priesthood, right, that has been established for us in the heavens, the way we come into the riches of that priesthood is by faith. 
is by faith that you are made just. And it says, if you became the just by faith, the way to continue on that journey is by faith. You know, there is no place at which you not, you're not going to need faith. So this flies in the face of once saved, forever or um, forever saved, right? You began by faith <laughs> and you believe to the end by faith. And that is why he then goes on in chapter 11 to begin to attempt to define faith. And he says, I cannot define faith, but I can tell you that faith is a substance. It's a substance of things hoped for. And when you have that substance, many things will happen to you. And he began to show them examples of, of heroes and the things that their faith led them into. Just to give you the comfort that, you know, faith is not just a mental principle that they tell you have faith or say to you make it known. Faith is, faith is real. It's organic. Faith comes because you keep your eyes on the author of faith, who is Christ himself. Hebrews chapter 12 calls him the author and the finisher of our faith. And if you have faith, there are many expressions of that faith. And that's what Hebrews chapter 11 shows us, the pattern of faith that was revealed in the patriarchs of the past. And he gives us a great call to say, fix your eyes on Jesus because he is God's final word. In Psalm, 1, in Psalm 1 verse 1, the psalmist says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, right? Nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on it does he meditate day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. And all of that and all of that. The law of the Lord was a delight. I always ask myself when I read that psalm, what was delightful about the law? Have you read the law before? Delightful and law are not supposed to be used in the same phrase. But the thing that was delightful about the law was that it was an entry point to the face of God. It was an entry point to the faith of the Son of God. It was an entry point into a life of faith. Into a life that produced good works because of faith. Into a life that that endured persecution because of faith, into a life that held fast to his confession because of faith. The book of Hebrews is littered with 13 letters. And those letters are distinct. They are things that can flow from our lives because there is faith. And so Jesus says to us that if you have faith, if you have faith, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? The, the source and the sustainer and the perfecter of faith is Jesus. And the writer is saying, I want you to fix your eyes on Jesus. He's God's final word. Meditate on him. Put your mind on him. Put your hope on him. Put your trust in him. Let him be the center of your praying. Let him be the center of your Bible study. Let him be the center of your believing. And if you keep doing that, <laughs> faith will rise in your heart. And in the context of these Hebrews, they will be able to survive persecution without the need to drift. But in our context, we, you might need faith for healing. You might need faith for a breakthrough. You might need faith to spread the gospel in a new territory. 
whatever it is, the writer of Hebrews is saying to us, keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on the word of God. And of course, he says that with a lot of warnings, right? That's, and, and the last of those warnings is in, chap, I think, verse 28 of chapter 12. No, verse 25 of chapter 12. He says, see that you do not refuse him who speaks. So the same God who started speaking in the Old Testament through the prophets, he has spoken through his son. And in a sense, he continues to speak through his son. There's something of Christ that God wants to leave, wants to lay hold of you, and he's, ad, and he's admonishing them. If you're going to stand in faith, if your faith is going to be rich, see that you do not refuse him who speaks. Meaning, see that you do not allow his words depart from before you. God said to Joshua, this book of the law, don't let it depart from your mouth, but meditate on it day and night. <laughs> we can say to you in the New Testament, don't let Christ depart from your mouth. Meditate on him day and night. The, the after effect of that is that faith will be born in your heart and you will live on a pedestal, on a plane that is not earthly. In the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Yeah, we need to stop here because of time and also so that we can come back later to pray. I was hoping that, I think I was a bit too ambitious with the things I was hoping to cover tonight. But I hope that we're able to at least set the foundation for the book. Um, there is so much more to come as we dive deeper into the comparisons that the author makes the angels that he makes with Moses, he makes with Joshua, makes with Aaron, makes with Melchizedek, just to show us that <laughs> it is worth it if you decide that it is Christ I settle on. If, if Christ is your one chance, it's worth it. You know one chance, right? <laughs> is there anybody? There's no non-Nigerian in this call. So all of us know one chance. That's what Hebrews is telling us, that if Christ is your one chance, it is worth it. Because anything else you want to go back to is inferior. Stay with Jesus. <laughs>